All right, I am in uh, Luke chapter 10. We're talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And there's a lot that we could say about the parable. We're going to handle this very simply, but I think it's kind of fun to do it this way, encouraging. I'm going to walk through the details of the parable, kind of refresh us, remind us of what the story is about. And then we'll talk about three ways. I've been thinking about how the church has understood the parable of the Good Samaritan. All three of these that the church has appreciated over the last 2,000 years are very true and honest to the text. And rather than preach one and study the other, I thought, let's, let's approach it and give all three ways that throughout the ages Christians have encouraged by this parable. And so the parable of the Good Samaritan begins in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he's a lawyer. That means he's an expert in the law. He's part of the sect of the scribes, which is also a part of the sect of the Pharisees. He's considered respectable. He's not radical. He's kind of an ideal neighbor in that culture. He's the kind of neighbor that you and I would want to live next to. Uh, We have in our minds this idea that the scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers are bad people. We only think that because you have the New Testament. But if you and I were there in the first century and you said, who do you want to live next to? Everybody would go, this lawyer here would make a fantastic neighbor. He's an ideal kind of neighbor there in the first century. And the lawyer comes to Jesus with a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, a lot of times in Scripture, when it says someone came to test Jesus, they're coming with kind of nefarious motives or something like that. That's often true. It's not always true. The word test here is a word that can mean test, almost provoke. Sometimes it means just to ask a question. And the more I've read the parable over the years, the more I get the feeling that the lawyer here is a little more sincere than meets the eye. There are times the Pharisees come up and they test Jesus and they try to trap him. I just get the feeling from reading this, and a lot of us might, that... Uh, that that he's he's just coming and kind of asking a question. Rabbis would do this all the time. In fact, Jesus did this to his disciples often. You know, he'd turn to Peter and them and say, whom do men say that I am? The rabbis would go back and forth with questions like this all the time. It's commonplace. Also, when you actually read the passage, it's almost like the lawyer expects Jesus to agree with him. So he's not necessarily trying to trap Jesus. He's almost trying to confirm his own views by using Jesus. So I don't get the feeling that he's nefarious in this question. He's just asking a question. Jesus, verse uh, 26. Jesus said, what is written in the law? How do you read it? I can tell you this. We have a whole lesson on the Bible packed into verse 26, if you want to think about it. Number one, Jesus and the lawyer agree on a couple things. Number one, Jesus and the lawyer, even though they have different interpretations here, They both agree that the scriptures are decisive on matters of life and faith. How do you meet God? How do you know God personally? Those are not questions you just find out in nature. Jesus and the lawyer agree the answer is going to be found in the scriptures here in the Old Testament law. They also agree that the law of God is understandable. In other words, when Jesus says, what do you read in the law? And the lawyer responds, the assumption there is that people can read the Bible and actually understand it. It's not, there's a passage in the Old Testament where it says, the word is not so far from you that it's up in the heavens. It's not so out there that you can't reach it. In other words, the word of God is accessible. That doesn't mean there aren't hard places in the scriptures. 
There's a place where Peter writes about Paul's writing and he says they're hard to understand. Don't twist them to your own destruction. There are places in scripture that are extremely difficult to navigate. I get that. But on a whole, Jesus is operating under the assumption that you can read the scriptures and understand and be encouraged by the scriptures. He also assumes that the scriptures are worth discussing. That it's a good thing to look at your friend and say, what do you think that verse right there means? <laughs> you know, I don't know. What do you think it means? Well, let's underline these words together. So there's a whole lesson on the Bible here if we wanted to take the time to look at it. Then we see the journey. Jesus begins telling a parable, verse 30. It's a journey. A man is taking a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem is all the way up. Jericho is below sea level. And the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is a very common one. They called it, by the way, the bloody way because it was so dangerous. It was windy. It was rocky. It would descend. There were caves along the way. It was a very dangerous road to take. It was 17 miles of danger. But it is the fastest way to go from, Jer- from Jerusalem to Jericho or vice versa. So you could take the safety approach and go three times as long all the way around. But many people, when they were in a hurry or you're on business, you got to get somewhere. And they would just walk that 17 miles. And that's what's being depicted here. Josephus, the first century historian, said it's desolate, it's rocky, it's dangerous. They called it the pass of blood in the Old Testament and in Jesus' day. And so it's no surprise that the man somewhere along the 17-mile trek, verse 30, takes place. He was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now the word robber here is a word that could mean regular robber, just like you and I are thinking, a mugging or a robbing. This is also a word that means terrorist or political zealot. I think it's probably a robber. But it is possible that what Jesus is talking about, inconsequential to the interpretation, but we're thinking about that it's some kind of political terrorist. And they would just kind of jump certain people along the path. Could this be a Roman terrorist, a a, a Jewish zealot, a Samaritan zealot? We're not sure. But the man gets sacked and he gets attacked. He's clearly outnumbered. The thieves take everything he has, including his clothes. Now, thieves wouldn't do that today. You know, you're not going to, a thief doesn't, you know, beat someone up and leave them all bloody and take those bloody garments with them. But that was very common in the first century. Clothes were worth a lot of money in the first century. Remember that place where they crucified Jesus in scripture and they, and they cast lots for his what? His garments. Why in the world would the soldiers want his garments? I mean, those garments are bloody, they're worn, they're torn. Remember, clothes aren't readily available in the first century. Probably if you're a Roman or you're even a Jewish person, you have one set of garments. To have a second set of garments, that's a lot of money right there. They'd go home and clean those up, stained and all. They'd keep them in their closet. You would keep clothes as a form of investment in the first century. That's how valuable clothes were. That's why Jesus says that there's a place we store our treasure up in heaven where moth cannot corrupt. In other words, if you put all your clothes in the attic or something like that, and you're saving them as an investment of some kind, the moths can come and destroy those clothes. Clothes are very valuable in the first century. So they take everything this man has, all his money, all his goods, and they strip him down to nothing and leave him on the road. He's left to die. It's okay, though, because along in verse 31 and 32, first comes a priest. He's a son of Aaron responsible for the sacrifices in the temple. He's the spiritual leader there in Jerusalem. 
you would certainly expect to find a priest on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. They would go between that 17-mile stretch. But the priest here passes right by the man on the side of the road. Next comes a Levite. A Levite would be considered like a priest helper. He's not a son of Aaron, but he worked in the temple. And they would prepare the They wouldn't do the sacrifices. They would prepare them and they'd clean up and things like that. Again, you'd expect the Levite to stop, but the Levite passes right by. And we can only speculate why. Were they in a hurry? Were they, were they afraid that this man was dead and they were going to touch a dead body and be unclean? Did they have family obligations? We're not told why. But here's the drama. Who is going to help this dying man? And along comes the Samaritan in verse 33. The animosity in the first century between Jewish people and Samaritans could not be overstated. Absolutely hated each other. In 1722, the Assyrians would invade a part known as Samaria. They disrupted the culture. They exiled some of the people, brought their own culture in, and that's where the animosity began. A couple centuries later, the Jewish people would start rebuilding the temple. The Samaritans wanted to come and help, and the Jewish people expelled them, wanted nothing to do, did not want Samaritan hands on that temple. The animosity started to run real deep. The animosity by the time the first century came around was so deep that when Jesus sat next to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, the first thing out of her mouth was, why are you even talking to me? Everybody knows the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. When they wanted to slander Jesus, they called him a what? A wine-bibber, a drunken, and a Samaritan. (laughs) That's slander in the first century. The animosity ran deep. By the way, again, sermon within a sermon here. The animosity that we find in the Gospels was so bad that James and John, remember they want to call fire from heaven on Samaritans? That in just a few months, they're going to be worshiping together in the same living room in the power of the gospel. The only thing, the only thing that is going to heal this kind of animosity that will bring, never mind Jew and Greek, that's tough, Jew and Samaritan. (laughs) Same local church, they would sit together on the couches, they will put their hands in the same bowl, they will break bread and pass it one to the other as if they are one in the same family, and that's because of Christ. Here comes the sympathy What will the Samaritan do? Maybe the Samaritan will kick him. Maybe the Samaritan will spit on him. Maybe the Samaritan will go and make sure he's dead. There's such animosity. But that's, of course, not what the Samaritan does. He went to him and bound up his wounds. That's the first thing he did. He goes over and he binds up his wounds. Very doubtful that the Samaritan has a first aid kit on him. The picture here is the Samaritan comes off. He strips off his own upper garment. He starts ripping it into shreds. And he starts to bind up the wounds with his own garment. This man has lost his garment. The Samaritan is now going to place this garment on the man. He ministers to him with oil and wine. The wine would be a disinfectant, fight off the bacteria. The oil would be ointment there on the cuts and the bruises. He sets him, what it says, on his own animal. Now, we don't know where he picked the man up. Did he pick him up at the one-mile mark or the 16-mile mark? We're not sure. But wherever he picked him up, he made this kind of sacrifice. He took the man, he put him on the animal. He's going to walk the rest of the way, and the animal's going to take the hurting man on his back. Could be 10, 12 miles that he's willing to give up to walk. It says he took care of him when he got to the inn. 
innkeepers are not exactly known for their good care. And the man here wants to make sure that the Samaritan wants to make sure the hurting man is okay. And so he stays with him. Stays with him for what feels like a couple days. In fact, it says in verse 35, the next day he took out two denarii and he paid. Two denarii, that's two days of wages. Whatever you make in a day, multiply that times two. That's what he gives up front. In the ancient world, that would give about 24, 25 days worth of nights at a hotel like this. So the Samaritan is in essence paying for almost a month for the man to stay and heal. And then he says this, he says the unthinkable. Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. By the way, the emphasis in the original language is on I. Whatever you spend, I, I will pick up that tab. Don't charge him, charge me. He's willing to reach out with this kind of love and compassion. Now, look at verse 36 and 37, back to the lawyer. Jesus said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And then he said, the one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. You realize this man, this lawyer, is so full of animosity and pride, he can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. What does he say? Who, who had compassion? Can't get Samaritan off. The one who had mercy on him. And by the way, that shows that a lot of times we know what the truth is. But man, we come really slow to it, don't we? <laughs> That's the condition of the human heart. Boy, faith and unbelief and spiritual things, it's not just a matter of the head. It's a matter of submitting our hearts to God. For 2,000 years, this church, uh, this story has inspired the church of God. Three historic interpretations, or let's call them applications, of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I thought it'd be fun to kind of tease these out a little bit. So here's the three. Number one, this story confronts us first. Number two, it's going to inspire us. And number three, it's going to guide us. So let's just tick through these kind of quickly, but we'll tease them out a little. Number one, first of all, it confronts the church. You know what the first lesson we get from the Good Samaritan is? We are not as neighborly as we think ourselves to be. We're not as loving and we're not as compassionate as we often present ourselves to be. So in in literature, what we're discovering here, studying, is what's called a frame story. You ever heard the phrase frame story? You have, but it was back like in 11th grade, right? So... A frame story is a story within a story. So the Titanic is a frame story. Uh, just see Stand By Me years ago. It starts off with somebody daydreaming. You know, anytime you have a story where it's an old person and they're thinking back, that's a frame story. It's a story within a story. The Wizard of Oz is a frame story. It's a story of Dorothy in Kansas, but then, of course, she's in Oz when she falls asleep. That's a story within a story. Withering Heights, The Odyssey, Secondhand Lions. If you know any of these stories, they're called frame stories. And literary experts tell us there's a lot of things that frame stories do, but the one thing you can't do is separate the two stories, the story within a story. Jesus here, Luke exact, presents us with a frame story. It's first the lawyer, and then it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And here's the point to appreciate. What is Jesus doing with the parable of the Good Samaritan? He's not telling the lawyer how to be a good neighbor. Not, not yet. First and foremost, he tells the story to tell the lawyer, you're not as good as you think you are. The lawyer says this to justify himself. Jesus says, don't even try it. (laughs) 
And he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable here, and the church has always understood it this way, this parable of the Good Samaritan is supposed to x-ray the heart of the lawyer. The lawyer feels good. The lawyer feels righteous. He feels like he's done all the right things. This parable goes over the heart of the lawyer in a way that exposes all the flaws and all the weaknesses and all the sins that are inside of him. The lawyer assumes, I'm a good person, because why? Because I don't have a lot of sins of commission. I'm I'm not like the robbers. And I imagine the lawyer thought that when Jesus told the story. A man went among you, he dropped among thieves, and the first thing the lawyer thought is, well, good, I'm not a thief, I have no problem. But then we see the sins of omission, where the priest and the Levite walk by, and the lawyer realizes, that's me, that's my life. In Christianity, The genesis of a relationship with God is confession. That's where it starts. That's what Jesus is trying to get out of the lawyer here. He wants the lawyer to see he's not as good as he claims himself to be. That's why in another place, Jesus says something like, they that are are well don't need the physician, only they that are sick. As people, we have to see ourselves as sinning we have to see ourselves as broken before we go to God for that healing and that forgiveness and I think the parable has to bring us at least this far self-righteousness has a terribly blinding effect on people the lawyer is full of self-righteousness he thinks he's a good person but the gospel here is preached by Jesus brings him to the point of confession so the very first thing this parable has got to do it's got to confront you and it's got to confront me If we walk away from the parable thinking to ourselves, well, I'm actually a pretty good person, just like the Good Samaritan, it hasn't done its work. Very first thing, it needs to cut before it heals, as G. Campbell Morgan, the preacher, used to say. So number two, not only does the parable confront the church, it inspires us. The Good Samaritan points us to the greater Samaritan. And who's the greater Samaritan? That, of course, is Jesus. You know, if you read the church fathers on the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know how they interpret it? They interpret it with a lot of imagination, spiritualize the text. We are the traveler, we're attacked by sin and Satan, we're left helpless. Jesus comes along and heals our broken spirit, he binds us up. Uh, Augustine preached it this way. The inn represents heaven, Jesus takes us there and he pays the price. I remember reading that years ago thinking that is way too imaginative for me. And I'm just going to confess, the more I read it, the more I liked it. Here's why. Because it's true. They get a little too detailed on this stuff. But there's no doubt that the Good Samaritan has to point us to the Greater Samaritan. The Good Samaritan is an ideal neighbor. He's everything that God wants us to be as a neighbor. And that's what Jesus is. Jesus is that kind of love. He is that kind of compassion. And that's why throughout the ages, when the church has read the parable of the Good Samaritan, they've seen the acts of the Good Samaritan somehow pointing to the acts of the Greater Samaritan. Uh, Let me put it to you this way. Here's how I wrote it in my notes. The Good Samaritan happened across the broken man, but the Greater Samaritan, Jesus, intentionally reached out to seek and to save. The good Samaritan gave of his resources, but Jesus became completely poor that we might become rich. The good Samaritan, he crosses racial boundaries to minister to the hurting, but the greater Samaritan, Jesus, crosses the very boundaries of the human race to minister to the hurting. 
The good Samaritan rescued a man who was sacked by thieves. The greater Samaritan allowed him to be crucified among thieves. The good Samaritan heals the broken man's wounds with oil and wine. But in Jesus' case, with his wounds, we are healed. The good Samaritan said, I'm leaving. I will return and pay whatever expense I have incurred. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. When I return, I will come with my holy angels, vindicate my people, and you will come and live with me forever. See, the parable is a pointer. It points us to Christ. The good Samaritan has got to show us the greater Samaritan. Now, why is this important? Because as Christians, if we're going to be the kind of neighbors God has called us to be, we first have to see that Jesus is that kind of neighbor to us, that he gave himself for us. In other words, when when we're doing deeds of kindness, it's a response to who Jesus is. It's a response to his ministry to us. We're not doing it to gain God's favor. And by the way, we're not doing deeds of love in the world because we feel guilty. That's the wrong motive too. Sometimes as Americans, we say things like, I have two cars, I have steak in the fridge, I can go out to eat, therefore I should go and give my stuff away and be a good person. Well, I don't doubt that's true. But if you keep going down that road, you find yourself feeling very guilty. It's rather exhausting. That's you giving out of what you have instead of just giving out of who God is. When you read the Macedonian Christians, they gave because God gave to them. Because Jesus is that great Samaritan to us, we now want to be the good Samaritan to the world around us. We respond to God's grace and his love. That's true of the law of Israel, by the way. In the Old Testament, you got verses like this. Don't mistreat the foreigner. Don't oppress the foreigner because you were once a foreigner yourself. In other words, God is so gracious to you in giving you a home. How could you not give somebody else a home? How could you not be moved with compassion with all God has given to you? It's a response to who God is. All right, last point is this. It guides the church. It confronts us. We're not as neighborly as we think we are. It inspires us to look to Jesus. And now it guides us. Now, empowered by the grace of God, Jesus looks at us in this parable and says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. So so let me tick off a couple of things here. The grace of God tells us to go and do likewise. And when we are empowered by the Spirit and by His grace, our quote-unquote neighborliness is going to go beyond certain boundaries. Number one, it's going to go beyond sentimentalism. Jesus is not content for the lawyer just to feel bad or feel sentimental. He says, go and do. you got to put feet to the compassion. You know, 10 out of 12 times in Scripture, the word compassion is used, it refers to Jesus. And Jesus manifests that compassion is put into action. We want to make sure that the same is true of us, that our compassion is put into action. We can't just feel sentimental. We can't just say, as the apostles point out, be ye warmed and filled, but really try to meet the needs. Uh, There's a story that they would tell in the English churches a couple hundred years ago. Uh, It's kind of a funny story where uh, there was a a, a man in town and he had a horse horse. And the horse died right there on the road. And this was one of his very few assets. The man is now going to be very poor. And along comes a group of people, and they're standing around, and they're all going, wow, we really feel bad for him. We are so sorry for your loss. And they're just kind of really signaling to each other what good people they are. 
And there, there's one man in the crowd, he's just becoming irate by this. Like, how can you feel bad but do nothing about this? And finally, he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out five pounds and he puts it on the ground right next to the horse and says, I am five pounds sorry. How sorry are the rest of you? And what he's saying there is we can't just sit here and feel bad for this guy. Let's really try to reach, meet the need in this person's life. Go and do. For God so loved the world that he... Yeah, he gave. That's an action word. He didn't just love and love and love. He gave. It also moves us beyond obligation. You know, in life, we all have obligations. You have legal obligations. The law requires some things for you. The government requires things. You have family obligations. Not only taking care of your kids, but there's just kind of unwritten rules that you take care of family members. You have community obligations. If you don't fulfill them, you're going to feel shame by the community. You have personal obligations where you say, I'm going to do this, otherwise I'll never be able to forgive myself. The point to appreciate in the parable of the Good Samaritan is when he reaches down to help this other hurting man, this Jewish man, he has no natural obligation to this man, not a single thing. What I mean is this. The priest and the Levite pass by. They have an obligation. But in the eyes of the rest of the world, the Samaritan has none. If Jesus told this story, he said, and then the Samaritan came and he passed by, everybody would go, of course he passed by. He's a Samaritan. Why would he stop to help? No family obligation, no cultural obligation. In the eyes of the world, not even a human obligation. It moves him beyond obligation. He goes beyond fear. Some of the cost here is obvious, right? It costs oil, it costs wine, it costs money to take care of this hurting man. It's also going to cost him his pride. I mean, there's a lot of hatred between these two groups. For the Samaritan to reach down and help this hurting Jewish person, he's, going to, he's really going to get the business from other Samaritans. But he does it anyway. But what I want us to see is something that's very under the radar in this text. There is a hidden cost to mercy. One of the reasons that we don't stop to help people is because as soon as you put your hand on a need, you sometimes feel like it's going to require even more. Put your finger on a problem, and it may require your hand, so to speak. Years ago, I remember passing by uh, a, a car that was broken down on the side of the road, and it was a lady that, you know, was um, there on the side of the road uh, with, with a broken... And I was actually literally on my way to, to church, and, I, you know, and I, of course, what's going in my mind is parable of the Good Samaritan. Like, don't be the priest. Don't be the Levite, you know? And uh, I, I stopped, and we, we changed the tire, and she got on her way, and every, everything worked out well. But I will make a confession. Here's what ran through my mind, and I imagine this runs through everybody's mind. Ah, what if I stop to help, and she doesn't have a jack? I got to go all the way home and get my jack. And then if my jack doesn't fit, I got to go to Walmart and buy a jack. What if the lug nuts, what if the, she doesn't have a spare tire? If I get involved in this problem, I could be here all day. I mean, i got to get to work, you know? Those are the things that run through our mind. There are hidden costs that we calculate just like this when we're reaching out. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with calculating those. I'm simply making the point, this man ministered to this other man. He had to push through those. And I imagine in your life, when you help people, you have to push through some of those too. That's why in the parable in verse 35, he says, 
when I come back, I will pay anything that this man incurs. That's the hidden cost. You know what the, you know what the Samaritan doesn't know? He has no idea how much that's going to be. Is this guy going to be here for a year? How many meals is he going to eat? How many doctors are going to have to visit him to keep him well? Is this going to cost me like half of my life savings? You have to push through some of those fears if you're going to help people in the real world. The truth of the matter is you may lay a finger on a problem and it may require your hand and then your whole arm. That's how life works. But in order to be the redeemed people God wants us to be, we have to be willing to do a little bit of verse 35. Whatever they incur, all right, I'll take care of that. And that can be time, that can be expense, that can be emotional energy. How many times do we not reach out to people because you think to yourself, look, I can talk to this person for 30 minutes, but oh, how do I do that 30 minutes for the next, you know? These are the things that run through our mind. This Samaritan reaches across those kinds of obstacles. Beyond tribalism, number four, beyond tribalism, not just doing good to those who are in his own tribe, but doing good to those that are culturally outside of his tribe. And finally, beyond excuses, beyond excuses. Charles Spurgeon, the, uh, the old English pastor on this parable said, I never knew a man who refused to help the poor who failed to give at least one admirable excuse. And here's what Spurgeon is saying. He's saying we don't know why the priest and the Levite passed by, but I can tell you what we do know. If you stopped either of those an eighth of the mile down the road after they passed by and asked them why, they'd give you an excellent excuse. I've got to get to my son's birthday. I've got to get home. I just did a 16-hour day at the temple. If I stop here, I have no idea. Maybe I'll get hit by thieves and robbers. Whatever those admirable excuses are, I may get mugged. I have promises to my family. I can't touch this man. He's ceremonially unclean. What if people jump? What if this is part of a plot to get me? All kinds of noble excuses. There's always a good reason why we can't help people. I've got my own issues. I've got my own family. I don't have the time. When I get on my feet, I'll go ahead and help people. There's got to be someone else out there that can meet this need. Admirable excuses. And to be the kind of Samaritan or neighbor God wants us to be, Sometimes we've got to push through those excuses a little bit. Sometimes there are legitimate excuses. We can't be all things to all people all the time. But we've got to push through them. So what does this parable do for us at RBC? Number one, can it at least confront us? Let it confront you. As you think about what it means to be a good neighbor, don't let your first response be, wow, I'm just like the Samaritan. Let it x-ray your heart. Don't be afraid to say, I am not the kind of neighbor God wants me to be. Confess it. Number two, let it inspire you to look to Jesus. Jesus is the kind of neighbor that you need. His righteousness is the righteousness that we need. And after now that you're empowered by that gospel, let's let it guide us. Let's push through sentimentalism, push through obligation, push through fear, push through tribalism, and push through those noble excuses to be every bit of the neighbor God wants us to be. Father, thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you that Jesus is the kind of neighbor to us that we needed and we currently need. Walk with us in a special way and help us to walk with you. I pray as we sing together, you remind us we are one in Christ. We've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, as the scriptures say. And help us now to be the kind of neighbors here in Ridgefield, 
that you've saved us to be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.